Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to Hot Take, the podcast where we talk about how to talk about climate change and how to make it more intersectional and touching. In other words, how to make it better. I'm Mariana East Hegler. And I'm Amy Westerbelt. This episode is part of our Frump Era review, and we're taking a trip back down memory lane to 2018, which even though it was just last year, I think you'll be as surprised as we were at just how much the climate conversation has changed in that amount of time. Yeah, I mean, I was blown away. Um, If you missed it, our last episode took a look back at 2016 and 2017, which were also groundbreaking years for climate coverage. And our next episode is going to take a look back at 2019. So look out for that in early January. Right. And after that, for the rest of 2020, we'll be looking at climate coverage in real time every two weeks. So make sure you're subscribed. Um, And and another (laughs) exciting thing for 2020 Um, We're going to start taking listener questions. So if you've got a question about climate storytelling, make sure to email us at hottakes at criticalfrequency.org. Yes, that's hottakes, plural. Yep. We're especially interested in questions from climate storytellers. So if you're working on a story or an idea and you're not sure how to make it intersectional, please reach out. We love that stuff. We do. And before we kick off our 2018 in review, just a quick reminder to think of these episodes as snippets and highlights. There's no way we're going to cover everything. That's right. All the articles we talk about here are going to be on our show notes and on Twitter, too. And if something's missing, tweet at us. We're at Real Hot Take, and we love hearing from you. All right. We've got a lot to cover. So to quote Beyonce, you ready? Let's go. You let me get away with way too much. (laughs) (laughs) So 2018 was a big ass year, wasn't it? Oh my God. I just, it does. I mean, I know that, that like this has been said by many people already, but like, Every year since 2016 feels like 10. It does. It does. It's hard to believe. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So just to like give a few highlights, Mm -hmm. 2018 in the summer, uh, Zero Hour, uh, the youth climate group marched on Washington. They were founded in 2017 by Mm -hmm. Nadia Nazar and Jamie Margolin, Um, but they organized this huge march on Washington and in New York City. And they had other satellite marches all over the country um, to demand climate action. Mm -hmm. Um, That was in July. And in August, Greta started her first school strike in Sweden. God, it's so crazy to think that that has only been going on for like a year and a half. That's really... It is. Yeah. Scott Pruitt resigned that summer. Um, (laughs) I know in the last episode I said that he resigned in the summer of 2017, but he actually resigned in the summer of 2018. That's how whiplash works, people. He can't keep it straight. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) We were stuck with him for a year longer. (laughs) We were. (laughs) Scott 
Pruitt was Trump's pick to lead the EPA. He resigned in 2018 amid various ethics scandals. There were accusations that he kept a secret calendar to hide meetings with industry people. He had a private phone booth installed in the EPA to keep his conversation secret. Uh, before he got to the EPA, Scott Pruitt was the attorney general of Oklahoma, and he actually sued the EPA more than he sued anyone else. It's a pretty widely known climate skeptic, big friend of the oil industry, and didn't do much but roll back environmental regulations as EPA administrator. AOC announced her long shot run for the Congress out of Queens mm -hmm. and ran on a Green New Deal. Right. And then there were the Yellow Jacket protests oh, in, in France. France. Yeah, yeah. That was interesting. That one, I feel like there's you're still seeing little kind of pockets of that happening. Yeah. Actually, let's take that way back because I, yeah. I'm a hazy on what Yellow Jacket protests were. Okay. And I bet a lot of people are. Okay, here we go. So the yellow vests that they were wearing are um, these like neon yellow kind of safety vests that drivers are required to carry in their vehicles in the case of roadside emergencies. So Macron, as part of a, um, a larger group of policies, put a tax on gas and around 280,000 people protested across the country in response um, calling for him to remove this tax. Um, it was going to make gasoline go up by around 12 cents per gallon on diesel and 28 cents a gallon on unleaded gas. And then to kind of continue going up, initially he refused to reconsider the tax because he said it was part of reducing France's dependence on fossil fuels. So that's super interesting because there's definitely a, a kind of a conspiracy theory that does sort of hold water that that you know fossil fuel companies were sort of fanning the flames of this protest because this is like exactly what they say will happen if anyone tackles climate change right it's like oh you're right. just gonna impose a cost on people who can't afford it and it's gonna be bad for poor people which I often find somewhat amusing because the idea that like oil companies are in business to solve poverty is like absurd right um, but it went on for um it went on for several weeks and like um it I, got violent it right? got like violent there were, there were big yeah. big riots there was like a lot of damage being done um yeah. it was it also really harrowing from tv it did like it made it look really violent and also um the unions got really involved too so that which is another kind of classic uh conflict you know labor has actually been one of the biggest uh obstacles to climate action um, for the last several decades. And, and partly that's because the industry has gone out of its way to sort of befriend labor. There's, there's actually like quite a bit of evidence around um, some of the, the top oil kind of communications people specifically being like, we, we, you know, as one of the points in their strategies, like befriend the labor union so that they're on your side. <laughs> um, and yeah, I don't know. There were also, you know, this at this time too, like Marine Le Pen had lost her sort of alt-right run at uh, leadership. And so there was some speculation that her camp was also kind of trying to stir this up as a um, as sort of an FU to Macron. 
and a sort of like, also, you know, yeah. No, go ahead. They, mm-hmm. they also designed the policy in such a way that the burden fell on the wrong people. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So it wasn't yes. that. And it was very against climate action. People are against paying for other people's sins. Exactly. That's what it really is. Well, yeah, this this again, it's like actually I when this was happening, I was like, why are people saying, oh, no, this is what might happen here instead of, oh, no, this is what happens when you make the people pay instead of the polluters. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But the big thing that happened before that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the resounding alarm bell wake-up call of 2018 was the IPCC report in that October. Mm -hmm. The first IPCC report that I think has ever made national headlines. Um, Certainly the first one that I have ever heard of, and I actually work in the, like, officially, officially in the environmental movement. Yeah, Um, yeah. So before we dig too far into this actual report, can you explain a little bit about what the IPCC is? Yes, it's an international body of scientists and policymakers. And then they actually let um, a certain number of NGOs and industry groups and all sorts of people with some kind of an interest in climate policy weigh in. Um, but the, the these final reports are uh, written and peer-reviewed and, I mean, gone over with a fine-tooth comb by the global climate science community. And they come out... Um, they come out every four years, they have a big assessment, and they um, make a bunch of policy and scientific recommendations based on those assessments. And they have always tended to be extremely conservative. Um, in fact, actually, there's there's like this this moment maybe 10 years ago where the, the activist community was was really annoyed with the IPCC and the oil companies started to embrace the IPCC because they were sort of like not really tepid. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this report where they're saying, you know, this is the report that, um, that has the information and recommendations in it that have made people ever since say things like we only have 10 years to act on climate. Um, exactly. So it really changed the, the landscape of the, of the conversation. It changed the vocabulary of the conversation. I'll say, so I remember before that people were talking about like, how do we limit things to two degrees? How do we limit warming to two degrees as the allowable limit? Um, and after that report came out, which really laid out in gruesome and grim detail what two degrees looks like and what 1.5 degrees looks like, people were like, oh, absolutely not. We have to limit it to 1.5 degrees. And the understanding that 1.5 degrees is not cute <laughs> and is a death sentence for a lot of people. Um, and that a lot of people have already died because of where we are right now. Like that cat got out of the bag. Um, and to a huge degree, it democratized the conversation. Like people were actually able to understand these things that I feel like people have hidden from the public for a really long time of like, we can't tell them how bad it is because then yeah. they'll get really scared and then they'll shut down. It's like, dude, they're already shut down. Yeah. So you know what? Fuck it. Let's yeah. talk something else. I think it actually <laughs> helped people feel like, okay, yeah. I, this is really bad and it is really yeah. happening. And they, they've, they just came right out and said like nothing we're doing is anywhere near enough. Yeah. And it pulled the veil (laughs) back on like Paris is not enough. Those Paris agreements that everybody was all all crunk about really not going to cut it, girl. Really not. Yeah. I mean, they straight up said like the emissions targets in Paris 
will not get us to where we need to be by 2030. And like not even not get us there, not even come close. Yeah. Right. So we refer to Paris. That is the UN Paris Agreement. It was reached in December 2015 and it brought all of the nations that are part of these global climate conventions into a common agreement to undertake efforts to combat climate change and adapt to its effects with an aim at limiting the temperature increase to below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and to pursue efforts to limit the temperature increase even further to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Several climate scientists in the meantime have said that the targets set in the Paris Agreement were too low and the IPCC itself said that in 2018. And they also pulled the veil back on uh, the companies responsible. Yes. Or it, actually, I've been scolded about this on Twitter. So I think that that quote that everyone uses about 71% of the emissions oh. today are, are by 100 companies. Mm-hmm. I think that came from another report that it came out did. at the same time. But it's still true. The Carbon so, Majors like, Report by Richard exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Exactly. So they th- both of those things came out at the same time. And so that veil was pulled back. And I yeah. think it was the death nail for the individual action frame. I remember in the immediate wake of this, seeing a lot of those traditional stories about, and here's what you can do about climate change. And it's, Mm -hmm. again, about recycling. Again, it's about, um, you know, eating less meat and, you know, all of these really like baby steps. And people blasted those (laughs) those articles with the stat that it was 100 companies, with the stat that the Paris Agreement wasn't enough, with the stat that we need a World War II-style mobilization. That was another line from this report that was like a mic drop moment, and people were like, oh, I get it now. Yes. Um, Yes. Totally. Totally. Yeah. 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 The... um there was that's this is interesting too actually timing wise because you had the IPCC report the carbon majors report and then you also had in 2018 you started to see a bunch more of what they call attribution science reports coming out which is um, a relatively new uh, branch of climate science where they can basically say this percentage of sea level rise is a hundred percent due to anthropogenic so human caused climate you know climate change human caused emissions and therefore like we can look at okay for example superstorm sandy what would have happened if we had like 10% less sea level rise and therefore like 10% less storm surge and whatever and and started to actually look at not just the responsibility of you know, okay, this company is responsible for this this amount of emissions, and we know that emissions were responsible for this percentage of the damage from this storm. So how do we then start to hold companies responsible for specific dollar amount damages, which really hadn't been capable of doing before? I do think that that report sparked a whole new wave of activism, too. So then... You know, you see Extinction Rebellion coming out in October 2018. I the do exact think same that, like, <laughs> yeah, the same exact month. And then the Sunrise sit-in at, at Pelosi's office was in uh, November. So it definitely, like, you started to see these kind of almost immediate actions related to it. 
Right. And zero hour gets a lot louder. Greta's school strike. I mean, it's hard right. to believe that that just started in August in 2018. I know. Right? Because I know. by August of 2019, <laughs> yeah. you know, like she's world famous. Um, now she's and, Time's person of the year. It's crazy. Exactly. Yeah. And and same thing for Zero Hour. Like Jamie yeah. is all over the news now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And no one had ever heard of Zero Hour before the summer of 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, the other giant thing is that AOC's long shot for, for Congress, she got into Congress on a blue wave in, in November of 2018, along right. with several other climate champions who surprise mm-hmm. surprise were mostly women of color yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> like yeah. ilhan omar um, rashida talib and ayanna presley mm-hmm. the squad so you know it was a huge year for climate action it just really it seemed like a giant wake-up call that year yeah um at the same time there were some not great news mm-hmm. <laughs> out of uh out of 2018 um starting well, not starting with, but including the Bolsonaro election in Brazil. Right. Right. Yeah. And we're still dealing with the consequences of that today. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, like people here were running on on a plank of like, you know, climate policy. And he one of his like cli- his campaign promises was to like lift environmental regulations, especially in the yeah. Amazon, you know. And so. Yeah. So and that not is one centimeter depressing. of land for indigenous communities. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, yeah, it's gross. And then there's all of the disasters mm-hmm. <laughs> that we saw in 2018. There's Hurricane Michael, Hurricane Florence, um, there was a forest fire in Greece in addition to a medicane, which I had never oh heard God, of. Um, and if you're like me and you've never heard of a medicane, what it is is a hurricane in the Mediterranean where there are not hurricanes. <laughs> oh, God. And this storm also hit Tunisia and Turkey. Um, there was Typhoon Jedi in Japan, mm-hmm. uh, Typhoon Mankut in the Philippines. Yeah. Floods and landslides in Japan and India, um, earthquakes and tsunamis in Indonesia, and no one can forget about the wildfire season that year in California, or or just the wildfire year in California. Yeah, yeah, it was so bad. (laughs) It was really, 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 really bad. Yeah, yeah, there was the campfire, Um, Malibu was evacuated, and then in December of 2017, you had the Thomas Fire in California, down in Southern California, and it actually burned for six months, which is like, it's six just hard. Months. Yes, it's hard to even um, imagine that. But yeah, in June of 2018, the, 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 like, the news outlet started running stories that like the Thomas Fire is finally out. That fire started in December of 2017. That's freaking nuts. Where, where was it? This was in Southern California, Ventura County. So it was Ventura and Santa Barbara, which is like two hours north of LA. And the super weird thing, so um, I know a lot about this fire because my uh, family lives down there and we had just been there for Thanksgiving and then um, it was shortly after we left that the fire kicked off and my mom had actually like more than one friend who lost their house in that fire and um, 
a couple of them, it was like the second time they had lost a home in a fire and they were just like, that's it. I'm done with California, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, understandably. Yeah. But then um, the, the big problem also was that about a month later, you started getting these unbelievable storms with really, really large volumes of rain in a very short amount of time. So you had mudslides that wiped out like entire houses. Like you would, it was crazy. The footage from that was like, you know, someone would be like, okay, the storm's pretty bad. The streets are flooding. And then they'd be like, oh my God. And all these houses would just be like falling down a hillside. It was, it was just it was yeah. crazy I didn't even know a house could do that yeah it was nuts <laughs> I, I remember seeing Oprah talk about it I was like okay so it's affecting Oprah right because Oprah has a house in Montecito that's right yeah actually so it's Montecito like the richest lady ever yes Montecito is this like very like Santa Barbara is a pretty wealthy town Montecito is like this extremely wealthy little like village just outside of Santa Barbara and a bunch of celebrities have houses there, including Oprah. Um, so, you know, it was getting probably more attention than it normally <laughs> would because of Yeah, that. I believe the Kardashians are, are up there. Yes, they um, have a house there. A lot of people, a lot of people. Um, and so, well, and then, you know, between that and Malibu that year, it was like the year that that climate change started to really like hit celebrities literally where they live (laughs) yeah so yeah um but anyway yeah that was um the largest fire in california's history um the thomas fire yeah and then a lot of people think it's campfire yeah i know then you have the campfire which is the fire that takes out uh paradise Right. Explain a little bit more about that for folks who might not remember. So that one, too, is, um, I mean, just it was massive. And it started up in um, 2018, actually almost exactly a year after the uh, Thomas fire. So it was November 2018. That It was an electrical. So when it started? Yeah. Yeah. It was an electrical um, fire. So it was you know, basically poorly maintained transmission lines, which is another, this is like a big thing in California right now is, you know, what role do the utilities play? And of course, what's happening now in part in response to the campfire is that PG&E and Southern California Edison are doing these massive planned blackouts. So they're like, it's going to be windy and like, our transmissions lines suck because we haven't maintained them for decades. So we're just going to shut off the power until the wind goes away. <laughs> At first, people were like, well, this is what we have to do. And it's better than dealing with wildfires and all of that stuff, which, yes. But also, there's this whole piece to it that's like, okay, but what happens if, like, you know, your business barely makes ends meet and you have to or you need an oxygen to, machine or you need an oxygen machine or yeah exactly it's like how do how do people who have any kind of reliance on um health like healthcare machines cope with like surprise you don't have power for a week you know um so exactly yeah and those are people who generally have a fraction of the income that most people have yep um yeah. like their earning power is extraordinarily compromised mm-hmm. so it's not like they can just all right my power's out so now time for me to get in my car which i don't have and exactly. drive to stay somewhere where there actually is power yeah and it's extremely hard for people on those sorts of margins 
to make plans. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But just like as you're talking about this, what I'm realizing is that I think 2018 was the year that California's fires started to become national stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so, because of Paradise. I feel like when you have a fire that burns an entire town, like the town of Paradise is, it, it's like, you know, 17-ish thousand people. It's not, I mean, it's small, but it's And not it was a retirement nothing. community. Exactly. Yeah. And it's and called Paradise. It's called Paradise. <laughs> so that, that was pretty like evocative. Yeah. And um, the camp, so the Thomas fire was the largest fire. The campfire was the deadliest and most destructive fire in right. California and it, history. Yeah. It moved crazy fast. And the so footage fast. out of it was, was harrowing to see yeah. people looking, driving through what looked like hell and yeah. reading the escape stories of people. I read one where someone was, trying to drive out of the fires, couldn't get out because there were like burned trees on the road and couldn't mm-hmm. drive out. And so they took off their, sh- they started running and yeah. then their shoes were melting onto the pavement. So they had uh-huh. to take their shoes off and then they are running and running and there's nowhere to go anymore. So they have to swim <laughs> through oh, an God. island to an island in the middle of this body of water. I don't remember what body of water. Yeah. And just hope that the wind doesn't blow, you know, a branch on fire over there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they yeah. wound up making it. But how do you really go on with, like, what are your nightmares like after an experience like that? I know. Um, I know. You yeah. know. <laughs> it's awful. You don't just, like, go back to normal after something like that. That is some, uh, that's like war trauma. <laughs> Totally, totally. There was some great journalism that came out of yes. out of Campfire in particular, out of mm-hmm. the San Francisco Chronicle with Lizzie Johnson. Yeah. Um, she did an amazing piece that mapped the fire through the experiences of mm-hmm. the people on the ground. So when the fire NATO happened, which is like exactly what it sounds like, as I understand <laughs> it, awful. it is a tornado yeah. made of fire. So this whole time we've been worried about shark NATOs. We should have been worried about fire NATOs. Fire NATO. Turns out. Yes. And. Yes. It moved fast as hell, and so people didn't evacuate as as they should have because they're used to fires moving much more slowly, whereas this was like, it moved with the speed of a tornado, which is unpredictable and incredibly fast. And I I think the other reason that this was a year that, like, the whole country's paying attention to fires was because of the footage out of L.A., you know, you're seeing one of the biggest cities in the country, the second biggest city in the country, and it looks like literal hell from their highways. And the fire wasn't in L.A., but it's visible from L.A., and they're, like, driving through literal hell. I think that that did something to people. And I think, like, in New York, um, and in the, especially in the rest of the country where fires don't happen that often, it's hard to conceive of co- coexisting with fire. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's sort of – it's. It's the image that we see in like every apocalyptic thing, right? It's like this sort of ashy, uh, fire-filled hellscape. So I think it's, yeah. it's just, you know, that's kind of where your brain goes. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can like bounce back after exposure to hurricanes because people, mm-hmm. you know, that's more normalized. Um, but also because water is not nearly as scary as fire. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, like there's no safe exposure to fire. <laughs> but speaking of of hurricanes and fires, the other big disaster I wanted to talk about was Super Typhoon YouTube. Yes. Um. So this was one of the most powerful storms to hit the United States ever. It struck the northern Mariana Islands, 
uh, whereas was the strongest typhoon recorded in northern Mariana Islands are in the Pacific near the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also struck the Philippines, and there it was known as Typhoon Rosita. And even though it was the strongest storm to hit U.S. soil since 1935, Donald Trump never, ever acknowledged it. Like, he approved uh, disaster relief but immediately. But didn't ever talk about it. Wow. No, never sent condolences, never tweeted about it, ever. And there was this huge media blackout on it. I don't think we talked about Hurricane Maria nearly enough, although we did talk about it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one... People barely talked about this storm at yeah. all. So I wanted to read a little bit from this piece by Aaliyah Wong and Lenika Cruz in The Atlantic. It's mm-hmm. called, <laughs> very aptly, the media barely covered one of the worst storms to hit U.S. soil. Yes. It's a little bit of a long excerpt, but I think it's all really important. Um, so they say... Despite the tens of thousands of American citizens affected, mainstream U.S. media coverage of U2 has been woefully limited. This reality is at once disappointing and expected for those living in the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands and on the nearby island of Guam. National coverage of U2 from outlets including the New York Times, CNN, the Los Angeles Times, the Wall Street Journal, and ABC News was largely limited to republished stories from wire services such as the Associated Press and Reuters. Many of these papers and networks had few or no original stories about the typhoon and its aftermath. This is The Atlantic's first story about U2. A three-person team from the Washington Post wrote a couple of longer, deeply reported U2 pieces, and the paper also ran multiple weather-related articles. But when the typhoon was covered, stories tended to be a cursory or focused more on U2's meteorological significance. Considerably less attention has been paid to the realities of recovery for typhoon victims who will be rebuilding for years to come. The Pacific Ocean is just one of many chasms between the continental U.S. and its territories in the Marianas. There are cultural, political, and economic rifts too. Geography may be the simplest explanation for why even epic disasters like U2 get overlooked. Essentially, the islands are so far away from the rest of the U.S. and so small that they're easy to forget. Even the language sometimes used to talk about these territories subtly frames them as unimportant. This erasure is compounded by limited political representation for citizens in U.S. territories, three of which are still considered colonies by the United Nations. Race and class, too, may play a role in the Marianas' relative invisibility in political and media arenas. The piece also goes on to talk about the importance of local journalism um, so that people just knew what was going on. Right. Yeah, it's pretty sad. It is really sad. I I definitely do not remember seeing much of any coverage of this when it happened. Like I saw a little bit of conversation on Twitter about it, but like Mm -hmm. nowhere near what Maria got. And you're right. We didn't talk about Maria enough. So this was just, (sighs) yeah, it's, it's really pathetic. And as I was reading it, they were talking about, you know, people from these, from these islands and including the Philippines too, in the United Mm -hmm. States, having to use phone trees to keep one another updated on what was going on and whether or not their loved ones back home were okay or what they needed. Um, And they were having a really hard time placing stories and getting media attention to send to get people to send donations um, to get people to send aid because like they desperately needed that. And because no one knew about the storm at all, Mm -hmm. um, they weren't sending any sort of help. The need for local journalism really spoke to me because in in those sorts of information blackouts, 
rumors start Uh (laughs) and like nobody really knows what sort of information is going on. And I think Katrina is a great case study for that, like all of the media chaos for that. And it's really sad that we're seeing more and more disasters that create those sort of information vacuums Mm -hmm. when local journalism is sadly dying out. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Okay, now it's time to talk about what we call foundational pieces from 2018. So these are pieces that either introduced an important new theme to the climate conversation or tackled the narrative slightly differently, got people thinking in a different way, maybe asked a question that hadn't really been asked before. And that actually is a, is a great segue into um, this, uh, what you called the tweet heard around the world. <laughs> Which is actually really funny because so I pulled up It's a this, tweet heard around climate Twitter. <laughs> yeah, but it's funny because I pulled up the actual tweet, right? So this is a tweet from Chris Hayes at MSNBC where he called climate a quote-unquote ratings killer and what he said was almost without exception every single time we've covered it's been a palpable ratings killer so the incentives are not great right yeah um and there was so much coverage of this tweet and so many people being like oh this is why is this why is this why we're not covering it that's why you know but the Mm -hmm, tweet mm -hmm. itself it only has 86 retweets and 507 likes it's not like it's not even like viral status tweets so I think I find like the media's reaction to this like you know it was a reply to someone else's tweet too so it's kind of like you know but also it's just like I have heard so I have literally heard producers in TV and film point to this as like part of why it's yes. And part of why it's hard to get TV or film projects that center uh, some kind of climate story greenlit. So I just, it's like, it's God guys, it's important what you say in public. And I think like, okay, it's a ratings killer, but like, could it possibly be the way that you're covering it? You know, (laughs) It could totally be that. I think it also can be, you know, people don't, it, people need to get normalized to it, right? Like exactly. you need to normalize the conversation. And mm-hmm. so maybe the first couple of times you talk about it, right. you know, especially if you do it once a year, twice yeah. a year, right. like only rarely. And you're like, of course people are going to tune week. out. Yeah. It's, or our climate hour yeah. once a year, yeah. people are going to tune out because you don't make it normal. You don't make it approachable. You make it seem like, a visit to the dentist, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, of course, yeah. people are gonna tune out for that. Like, you, yeah, you don't totally. make it part of the normal conversation. And mm-hmm. so, and also talking about climate in isolation is a kind of a problem because it's right. never in isolation. It doesn't affect your life in isolation. It's hard to understand it right. in isolation. Right. So, you know. That that's part of the problem. And I think the reason that this tweet has such a huge impact, even though, you know, it didn't have the the metrics to back it up on Twitter, right. yeah. was, I, I mean, first of all, I think maybe people were afraid to like it. Maybe people were afraid to retweet it. So <laughs> there's true. that. Yeah. Um, 
but it's because of who it comes from, right? Right. We know that Chris Hayes is known for caring about climate. He wrote one of the most groundbreaking essays Mm -hmm. on climate that I've ever read in the nation, The New Abolitionism. Yeah. Um, And so we know that he cares about this. We know him as a progressive media darling. Um, So if he says it's a a ratings killer, it's not because he doesn't want to cover it. It's because it's actually a ratings killer, which Mm -hmm. I know I disagree. I know you disagree. Um, I don't think it has to be a media, a a ratings killer. Like maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And I I also think it says a lot about who watches cable news. Well, yeah, like that's true. The people who watch Mm -hmm. cable news are generally older people who we know don't care about climate as much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So totally, totally. Yeah. Right. Like people care about climate in Gen Z hardcore. People care about climate in the millennial generation hardcore and in Gen X. But in the baby boomer generation, people generally don't care about it. And they're watching. Those are the people who watch cable news. The only time I watch it, like we've talked about this, is when I travel and when I go home to see my mom because she's Mm -hmm. like a cable news junkie. And she she like, oh my gosh, she's such a cable news junkie. (laughs) Like half the time, I don't know if she's watching football or watching the news because the way that she, because she yells at the TV the exact same way. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Well, that's like how they've, but that's totally like how they've designed it is like to make it like a spectator sport to watch Mm -hmm. news. Yeah. But that's, so that's what I was going to say too, is that like, the the whole the entire framing of this also bothers me too because it's like who gives a shit if it's a ratings killer you're the news you're supposed to be providing critical information to people to me I'm just like oh this really speaks to the problem of cable news being you know essentially a clown show instead of an actual news provider <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean it's like um when when you're when one of the like dominant news sources in the country is more concerned about entertainment and ratings than actually informing the public, that's a problem, you know? Um, yeah. I bet the Nixon impeachment was a ratings killer at first because people thought it was Mm -hmm. a bummer, but like, it's your job to make it interesting. The other thing that I thought was like such a breath of fresh air in 2018 Mm -hmm. um, was that there were all of these assaults on the very insidious, very annoying hope trope. Yes. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Mm So when I say the hope trope, I mean the climate community's insistence that when we talk about climate, we have to be hopeful. Mm -hmm. We have to give a message of hope. It has to be a positive message every single time that you talk about it. Yeah. One of, I think, the best examples of someone saying, like, enough with this already is NASA climate scientist Kate Marvel wrote Mm -hmm. this great piece called we need courage not hope to face climate change it showed up in on being another great podcast by the way um, but they also have a good Mm -hmm. website (laughs) Um, yeah yeah they do and um i'm gonna read i'll read a little excerpt from it kate is like she's such she's like another one of these people where i'm like really like you're a brilliant scientist and and a brilliant writer writer. right right and your last name is marvel and you're yeah like you're a superhero come on um okay i'm gonna read now i have no hope that these changes can be reversed we are inevitably sending our children to live on an unfamiliar planet. 
But the opposite of hope is not despair. It is grief. Even while resolving to limit the damage, we can mourn. And here, the sheer scale of the problem provides a perverse comfort. We are in this together. The swiftness of the change, its scale and inevitability, binds us into one. Broken hearts trapped together under a warming atmosphere. We need courage, not hope. Grief, after all, is the cost of being alive. We are all fated to live lives shot through with sadness and are not worth less for it. Courage is the resolve to do well without the assurance of a happy ending. Little molecules, random in their movement, add together to a coherent whole. Little lives do not. But here we are, together on a planet, radiating evermore into space where there is no darkness, only light we cannot see. Oh, God. Beautiful. I mean, it's It's, so beautiful. My favorite is. is definitely... Broken hearts trapped together under a warming, warming atmosphere. Yes. It took everything yeah. in me not to stop there and go, Jesus, what a sentence. It's so good. I know. <laughs> <laughs> like, I love it, but I hate you. But this resonated with me so much because mm. everybody has always said, like, if you don't have hope, then you won't get out of bed in the morning and you won't get engaged and People won't, you know, do anything about the problem. It's like, actually, hope I find to be more immobilizing than yeah. despair, actually. Yeah. Because when, I, when I'm, when i like, wrapped up in hope, I'm like, somebody's got it. It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. You know, I need, I need to freak out to get active. And I actually think that that is way more common than yeah. people who are activated by hope. Yeah. Right? Like, hope comes way later. Hope comes after you've built the moment. Hope comes after you've got momentum. We don't have momentum. Actually, 2018 was the year that we started to get momentum. Yeah. Um, and In part I... because of people giving up on the hope thing. You exactly. Know. Yeah. Because of people being more honest about their emotions, which don't operate in these binaries, mm-hmm. which I was really happy to see Kate talking about. The opposite of hope is not hopelessness. Exactly. <laughs> it's it's exactly. grief. I love and that. And grieving too. is yeah. normal. Yes. And it's necessary. You have to go through a grieving process before you're able to to move on, before yeah. you're able to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that this shift in emotional language and the shift in emotional range is indicative of a generational shift. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I have strong yeah. theories about this, mm-hmm. <laughs> which might give me a little bit of trouble. So um, I am a millennial. I'm 36 years old, so I'm one of the older millennials. I'm mm-hmm. close in age to Kate. And I saw 2018 as the year that millennials took the microphone and Gen Z took uh, the bullhorn. <laughs> Yeah, um, which is like a beautiful shift. And so I think one of the biggest markers in difference between millennials and our previous generation, Gen X, mm-hmm. um, which is your generation, yes, yes. <laughs> is that we are way more emotional. Yeah. And I don't see that as a problem, honestly. But I, no. when, I, when I think of my stereotypical Gen Xer, they are more emotionally detached. They see mm-hmm. you know, strong emotions as 
um, hysteria or as some sort weakness. of weakness. Yeah, yeah exactly. Totally. Like, oh, you kids are so emotional. Like, I remember that entering the workforce, you know. So as an older millennial, if I wanted a job, I have mm-hmm. to conform to Gen X uh, culture. I Like, those were the people hiring me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to, like, tuck my emotions in and be, like, more logical and objective about, you know, the way I approach communications, my field. Um, and in that case, you don't freak out in public. That is just not done. Um, right. You don't talk, like you talk about um, communications in this very detached kind of way, which was, you know, very much against my nature, but I learned how to do it because that was what, you know, it had to be done. And I think what I'm seeing now, especially in the climate space, but I, I see it all over the nonprofit sphere. So I built my entire career in nonprofit communications. Right. Um, all of these subjects are being talked about with a higher level of urgency and a higher level of emotion. And I think mm-hmm. that that was a problem with the way they were, they were talked about before that was dominated by Gen X of this, yeah. like this cool detachment, this like strong commitment to like calm in the face of calamity, I think is what really brought us to the brink of destruction. From my perspective, it's not just that uh, millennials are more emotional. It's also that like millennials are more emotionally intelligent and like have been encouraged to express their emotions. It's like, it's like, um, yeah, we have more vocabulary for it. And Gen Z has way more than us. And I can say this as someone who's worked with the zero hour kids. I actually wish I had more time for them, but sadly I don't. Mm -hmm. Um, but I've, I've worked with them and seen them tackle these topics that I was like, Oh my God, this is going to lead to a super mean girl situation. This is gonna like, I don't know how they're going to be able to handle this. And they are like, so kind to each other and just have such a wealth of emotional intelligence that I've been like, God damn, can y'all do some workshops for some people I know? I know. 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 It's amazing. Gen X was very just get on with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was also this, there was value placed in not giving a shit, you know, like exactly. It was cool to not give a shit and be like a slacker and be like, like disaffected and, you know, over it and over it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And so, and you're a baby Gen Xer. I am. I'm a, I'm a Zennial um, because I'm 41. (laughs) So we have this like tiny sliver, which is actually kind of interesting because we are the last generation who actively remembers uh life before the internet mm-hmm. um but also well, I think I'm there too yeah yeah I mean you're only five A years behind bit. me yeah I didn't have like an email account that I checked regularly until I was like out of college you know mm-hmm. or like mm-hmm. A phone, like I didn't have a smartphone until well yeah. into my twenties, and like, yeah, um, you know, so social media was like not a thing until I was, yeah, probably like thirty, you know, so yeah, um, so but it's like, but we were still young enough when all that stuff came about that we aren't like, what is this, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. So, yeah, I call my my sliver of the millennial pie. I call us um, Generation Beta. And right now, I would say that this is the the folks who are like 33, maybe to 40, because um, we're the like the last. I feel like we're the generation where all this stuff was tried out on us. Yes, totally. Facebook started when I was in college. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we were like the last generation to learn the Dewey Decimal System. And we, mm-hmm. a lot of us learn how to type on a typewriter. Yeah. Um, because computers weren't ubiquitous when we were in high school. You know, I meet a 25 year old, I'm 36. Technically, we're both millennials, but like there's, oh, a yeah, huge but there's chasm so between much us. difference. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of climate communications, it's like there's been a major leap in the last. 10 years and totally actually I definitely feel like this is a realm that needed more emotionally intelligent communications because like yeah yeah, for sure Gen X was like but like no just stick to the charts Um, exactly and I feel like that's what I see a lot of when I'm like you know working with editors or when I look at how the conversation was shaped over the past few years um, I think it was a lot of that playing out in the debate of do we freak out about this in public Um, because in and I I see a lot of people framing that as a gender thing of like Uh who's being more emotional about it I see it playing out more along the generational lines and the gender lines actually that's super interesting yeah yeah Yeah. because I see a lot of men freaking out about climate change in public and they're generally millennials Mm mm-hmm um, like, well, that's another big, big difference. I actually, I think that yes, for men in particular, um, I think gender norms change dramatically from Gen X to millennial, um, mm-hmm. big time. Yeah. 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 You were saying you saw a big change in the past 10 years. I saw just a dramatic change in 2018 alone. Yeah. And it paved a different path for the conversation in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the generational shift me- meant that the emotional thing just changed completely. Um, yeah. And I saw that in language like 2018 was when I started seeing climate chaos and climate crisis mm-hmm. as opposed to climate change. Like I remember getting scolded for saying climate change in public and oh, like, call it so chaos, call it what it is. And I was like, all right, dude, hi. That's so interesting. <laughs> yeah, I do feel like that we it's when we started to see a lot of talk about climate anxiety and climate grief and mm-hmm. all of the, these things. Yeah. There was another really big shift in the conversation in 2018. People start to interrogate the usage of we. (laughs) Yes. Um, Like people started to mm -hmm. ask, who the fuck is this we that you're talking about? Um, And I think a lot of that was prompted by that gigantic book length. Yeah. Magazine story in the New York Times magazine, Losing Earth, which I have not read because I'm sorry. The entire issue. It's the entire issue. Um, Yeah. So I I got like very publicly mad about that story. (laughs) (laughs) See, this is what I'm talking about. People got mad in public. I'm for it. Yes. Because so it, it, um, it was it's called Losing Earth is written by Nathaniel Rich. It's very lovely. Like the writing is beautiful and uh, it's a very like tight, well-told narrative. My issue with it was that there were um, a variety of inaccuracies in it, which were um, sort of in service of the narrative. And like, I'm okay with that when the inaccuracies are things like, you know, I don't know, even if even if it's something that's like a slip of a year or so in the timeline. But when it's stuff like you're you're actually like misrepresenting the science or you're misrepresenting like what was happening in the the policy realm, then it starts to be it starts to veer into like 
dangerous territory, in my opinion. Um, and I actually happened to be um, speaking with a few people that had been interviewed for that story shortly after it came out. And every single one of them was like really pissed off at, at like being misquoted, misunderstood. A lot of scientists were like, I feel like this guy doesn't understand science and like also is too arrogant to ask questions. What was the story um, about? Okay, so it was really people like focused, me who didn't read it. <laughs> yeah, it was focused on this decade of the 80s when we like the story is sort of we almost acted on climate change and then we didn't. And the the sort of conclusion that he comes to is like mm, human nature, like we're naturally short sighted. Um, there's like, you know, he follows a few key um scientists and policy people in their sort of quest to try to convince everybody to act on this and and like and there's sort of this build of like okay like the press is really covering it and there I mean this was true the press was like really covering it like you're starting you're almost when oh this is like in the um in the late 80s um, people were and, covering climate in the late yes 80s. it's really it's fascinating as someone who like spends most of my time studying climate communications history <laughs> um, it's I did like, not know that it's really interesting what like I see what's happening now as being about like where it was in um actually more where it was in like the early 90s which is like part of my issue with this story but um but yeah there was this there was like a, a moment in time before where we had this much momentum and then it just sort of petered out and so his story was trying to ask the question of why which is c- totally valid and like a great idea for a story my issue with it is that he he stopped it in the 80s and there was actually like a I think that like the answer to his question was actually what happened in the nineties. And it's like largely to do with the amount of capital that was mobilized um, against climate action. And he leaves Mm. out that whole part of the story. It's sort of like he, when uh, he turned this into like sort of a novella later and had an intro that talked about how, you know, the fossil fuel industry in the wake of this decade, um, you know, kind of, spent all this money and blah, 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 blah. But they had actually started doing that in the late 80s. And there's just most of that is entirely left out. Um, And it's very much a story that centers white men as the like default human, (laughs) you know? So it's like, is anyone else even included? No, not really. It's very like, you know, it kind of looks at like what all of these different white men were trying to do. And then it says like, we didn't act because like, you know, of our nature. And it's just sort of like, okay, but um, who's we, who's we exactly. exactly. Actually, I think this story was like the really like the match on the flame of the, who is we uh, <laughs> fire that this exactly. year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, which is why I, I want to read from a piece by Genevieve Gunther, which came out October 2018. So it's after mm-hmm. the IPCC report, but I think it very much speaks to Losing Earth, which was August 2018. Yes. So the title of her article is Who is the We and We Are Causing Climate Change? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Given that climate change is a global problem, the temptation to use we makes sense. But there's a real problem with it. The guilty collective it invokes simply doesn't exist. The we responsible for climate change is a fictional construct, one that's distorting and dangerous. By hiding who's really responsible for our current terrifying predicament, 
We provide political cover for the people who are happy to let hundreds of millions of other people die for their own profit and pleasure. Climate change may well inspire a reckoning for you about what it means to be human and what your, mo your morals are. Fine. But always remember, this is a battle against the forces of destruction to save something that is achingly beautiful, utterly miraculous world for your children. The fossil fuel industry and the governments that support it are literally colluding to stop you from creating a world that runs on safe energy. They are trying to maintain the fossil fuel economy. As for me, and for the millions of people who want to undo climate change, I say, we are against them, and we are going to fight for dear life. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean... A, a little, I, another little like anecdote related to the losing earth story. <laughs> I happened mm -hmm. to like the week that that came out, I was talking to a like notorious climate denier. In fact, the guy who was in charge of the Trump transition team for the EPA, who like, you know, has basically just been trying to gut the EPA his entire life. Um, and he was, I can only describe it as gleeful about this story because he was, he was just like, see, this is what we've been saying all along. Like, you know, you can't hold anyone accountable because everybody knew and we all didn't act. And yeah, you know, this is what we've I... been saying all along. And oh my God, when the king of the climate deniers thinks that your climate Spot opus on. proves their point, like you yeah. did not do a good job. <laughs> You totally didn't. I, I feel like the fossil fuel industry, you know, reacts to climate stories or like their their defense on their climate culpability is always whoever smelt it, dealt it. Mm -hmm. so, like, and to that I say, say, whoever supplied it, denied it, oil guys. Exactly. Boom. It's like, oh, you're, talk you're freaking out about climate change. Well, what about your, your, your lamp? Exactly. They're I mean? like, I noticed that you drive an SUV, ma'am. I know. Right. Yeah. When was the last time you burped? I know. I know. <laughs> you know I have never been a big white wine person, and especially not in the fall. But after becoming a member of First Leaf, I'm a convert. First Leaf knew exactly what types of whites to send me that felt familiar and delicious and would get me excited about trying something new. I love First Leaf because they make it easy to get personalized wine delivered on my schedule right to my door. Since I choose the day that my shipment comes, I'm never stressing out about missing a delivery, and every selection is backed by First Leaf's 100% satisfaction guarantee. I love how I just have to answer a few questions and they just know what I'll like. No more zoning out in the store looking at a hundred different bottles and trying to pick the right one. Give your palate what it really wants with First Leaf. Go to tryfirstleaf.com slash drilled to sign up and you'll get your first six hand curated bottles for just $44.95. That's T-R-Y-F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F.com slash drilled. Tryfirstleaf.com slash drilled. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. 
I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, Earth Breeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, 40-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%-40%
part of this last vestiges of we must have hope narrative. Mm -hmm. And if we make a big deal about this and if we acknowledge this and talk about it, then, you know, we have to talk about how serious this is. Yeah. Um, I also saw a lot of people trying to like rationalize it as, you know, part of some underlying mental illness. We don't know. Maybe he had a mental illness and like he was super fucking clear. Yeah. Is, is yeah. suicide. No, I am yeah. doing this for this reason. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally, totally. Another reason I want to talk about suicide as a theme um, is there was a study in 2018 that showed that hotter days increased the suicide rate. Mm-hmm. Um, and Robinson Mayer in it, in the Atlantic wrote a piece on it. Yeah. And what he he also talked about, and what the study talked about, is that air conditioning doesn't seem to solve this problem. No, which I think anyone who's been in an uncomfortably hot city for more than a day can mm-hmm. like can attest to. And another way that that shows up is farmers. Yeah. Um, so there's the ongoing crisis of farmer suicides in India and I'm sure in other places where people just can't make a living the way that they were used to making a living before and they don't know how to make another living. And so it seems like the only way out is suicide. And it's, re- it's actually really yeah. hard to get the data on this um, mm-hmm. since 2000 and um, since the Modi administration, quite honestly. Yeah. Um, but it's been going on since at least 2014. And I know The Guardian published a piece in 2017, like, look, at least 60,000 Indian farmers have committed suicide and it's not hard to link it to climate change. Yeah. Um, also, in 2018, there was a study from the CDC that said suicide rates for farmers in the United States was higher than it was for veterans. And they had to retract because there was a coding error that, like, that, that comparison wasn't exactly right. But the fact that they had to retract it was actually harmful for farmers because it still remains true that the suicide yeah. rates among farmers are alarmingly high. Yeah. And so because they had to retract, that sort of gave people the impression like, oh, it wasn't that oh, bad. It's not they just overblew it. I know. Yeah. I know. The first step, I should say, is to destigmatize the conversation. Right. And I think it is mission critical that we destigmatize it within the climate community because I think the folks who are on the front lines of it who have been confronting it for a really long time are probably the people who are quite possibly suffering in silence from these sorts of thoughts and feeling really alienated. Cause I think the hardest part about having suicidal ideation is feeling alienated about talking about it and feeling like you will burden someone else by talking about it. Right. Um, And probably one of the best things that we can do is just talk about it more proactively. Um, And I think it's, it's another one of those things that people feel like, well, if we talk about it, then more people will do it. And I, I don't know that I agree Not with that. Thing. And I feel like that's yeah. I feel like that's the same way that we've talked about climate change. If we talk about yeah. it, then people will shut down and like not and give in to fatalism. And it's actually the opposite, right? Like if we talk about it, people feel less isolated and less alone and like, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um I mean, I do, I think that's like a, a, a good segue into, you know, looking at all of the, the other ways that we started talking about how climate change is making people feel desperate and or putting people into desperate situations. And one of the main ways that that has happened for, um, you know, a few years now, but I think we just started talking about it a lot more in 2018 is uh, climate and migration. And the idea that a lot of these like mass 
migrations that we're seeing around the world are being driven by climate change, whether it's uh, drought or natural disasters that are moving people around or, you know, resource scarcity that are creating wars that then drive people out. There's just a lot of this happening. Um, So there was this great piece by Lauren Markham in the New York Times called A Warming World Creates Desperate People. The hundreds of migrants I've interviewed in the past few years, whether from Gambia, Pakistan, El Salvador, Guatemala, Yemen, or Eritrea, are most often leaving because of some acute political problem at home. But I've also noticed something else in my years of reporting. If you talk to these migrants long enough, you'll hear about another more subtle but still profound dimension to the problems they are leaving behind. Environmental degradation or climate change. When reporting a story among migrants living in the shadows of a Kenyan slum, I asked a group of men why they left their homes in rural Ethiopia. They were farmers there, like many generations before them, but they told me they could no longer make a living off their crops or even adequately feed their families. The rains had changed. It wasn't just that they had lessened, but that they had become more erratic. No rain when the crops needed it to grow, and then when it was time for harvest, it would rain suddenly and terribly, ruining the crops. The men had left for Kenya to find work and send money back to feed their families. I think that story is so unbelievably common. I've interviewed um, it is. farm workers in California, same thing. Like they're, you know, and farmers in California too, who are like, we can't, there's no predictability to the weather anymore, which if you're a farmer, that is like, that's disaster for you. You cannot yeah. like have, um, you can't have sudden rains and sudden freezes and sudden droughts that you know, right. you, you lose. I mean, we're seeing actually stories this year about what's how that, the impact of that in the Midwest and how. Mm-hmm. And upstate New York. Are, I've seen a lot of that. Exactly. Yeah. And how farmers are dealing with these, um, this sort of like feast or famine drought or flood thing that like you can't actually plan and grow crops around. Right. And the same is happening with, with fishermen. Um, and the fishermen thing is really, I, I still, I mean, I've seen a few stories about it, but I still don't think it's like quite sunk into people. What's happening is, is that like, not only are you seeing, um, you know, massive declines in, in fish populations, but these just like incredible migrations of like entire species that used to be in one place are now 200 miles North because they're Mm -hmm. scrambling to get to colder water. What that does to a community that is entirely built around fishing is, is dramatic. I mean, I I was really happy to see this shift in how we talked about migration because 2018 was the year where like it was dominated by the, the caravan stories um, of these giant caravans of, you know, bad hombres or whatever coming from, (laughs) from Latin America. And like, I remember, um, you know, it was all about people are running from gang violence. They're running from, you know, honestly, if you look at it, it looks like societal collapse. So all these Uh people who are saying like, oh, civilization is not going to collapse until 2050 or whatever year. I'm like, I feel like it's collapsing right now, girl. (laughs) You're just you just don't give a shit because you don't live in that society. Um, so, but I, you know, I'm hearing these stories and I'm like, I bet if I scratch just the the surface, just even a little bit, I'll find climate change. And I did. It's so interesting to me, this idea of like, you know, that, that 
connecting climate to those things would be co-opting like the immigration story, for example, versus just, you know, the fact that climate is a, a, uh, like a sort of a force multiplier for everything. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's just like, right. I I don't know. It's It's the setting for um, the story. Yeah. 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 And so back to the migration frame. Yeah. um, I feel like after the summer of 2018, which is when this was this piece that you just read from was published. um, After that, I started to see a sort of blending of the migration beat and the climate beat. Um, And I think that was another big theme of 2018, like climate being integrated into more and more topics as people Mm -hmm. talked about them. Mm -hmm. Um, Like it wasn't, it was part of the story as opposed to a whole separate story over by itself, like at, at the kids table or like the climate table. Right. Exactly. (laughs) It got to sit with the big kids. I think we also can't talk about the rise of climate migration without talking about the rise of authoritarianism, yep. um, which unfortunately with the election of Bolsonaro in, in Brazil and our <laughs> mad king here in the United States and elsewhere, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't ignore this trend. Um, So in July 2018, Samuel Miller McDonald um, published a piece in the New Republic called Climate Kings that really made my skin crawl. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Refugee crises, famine, drought, these are materials strong men can use to build power. Already, strife and civil instability are spreading throughout the global south with droughts and floods stoking conflict and refugee crises in parts of Africa and the Middle East. According to a 2016 paper in Science, climate change will increase the risk of armed conflict across Africa by 50% by 2030. Eastern Africa is particularly vulnerable. The genocidal strife in Darfur is one of the bloodiest examples, but even countries with robust economies and democracies are susceptible. And I feel like we've seen that very quickly morph into the conversation about eco-fascism that's like happening constantly right now. Um, And and yeah, of course, like limited resources, like you end up with authoritarianism in some places, you know, it's just like, yeah. So I wanted to talk about um, this piece by Naomi Klein um, in September 2018. She said the title is There's Nothing Natural About Puerto Rico's Disaster. Honoring the dead begins with telling the truth. And the truth is that there is nothing natural about this disaster. And it isn't even right to call the storm itself a natural disaster. None of these record-breaking storms are natural anymore. Irma and Maria and Katrina and Sandy... And now Florence and Mankhud, which battered parts of Asia this week. The reason we are seeing records shattered time after time is that the oceans are warmer and the tides are higher, and that's not God's fault either. It's the fault of governments protecting the interests of the fossil fuel companies and agribusiness giants that pay for their campaigns. So the reason I wanted to talk about this a little bit is because I've been yelled at for using the term natural disaster to refer to all of these you know, disasters that we see. And I'm like, um, and people have been like, I'm sure you can figure out why that's a problem. And so here's a fun fact. I can't, I can't figure it out. So 
<laughs> I thought I would use this opportunity to ask you to explain to me and to everybody else why the term disaster, natural disaster is not applicable to things like campfire and Hurricane Maria. I I actually I think this is really really interesting cuz I have to admit that before reading this piece I hadn't really thought about it. It's sort of like, well yeah, that's the term that we use, but the idea that like, you know, it's not actually nature causing these things. It is man-made climate change causing <laughs> these things or at least like in the form that we're seeing them now. You know that like you actually wouldn't probably have a fire nato in Paradise, California without several decades of unchecked climate change and you wouldn't have a superstorm sandy or a u2 or an irma or a maria or any of these things um you know they would not be impacting us quite as much if um there wasn't this sort of extra kind of intensifier of climate change happening which is not necessarily natural so um yeah i hadn't thought of it that way i don't really know like what the, I guess the term, we just call them disasters and not natural disasters. Hey, I think that's actually problematic because I think calling them disasters, that can mean anything, right? Like a yeah. mass shooting it is a disaster. Sort of, yeah, that's true. That's it A train wreck like is a disaster. And uncaused and un, like misunderstood too. So yeah. It sounds like something you can't control. I think, first right. of all, I don't think calling it a natural disaster immediately like disqualifies it. And I think people actually understand what that term means. And I don't yeah. think it's, I don't think it's harmful to call things natural disasters. And I don't think not calling it a natural disaster like mm -hmm. suddenly removes any level of harm actually right, right. um i think if we're going to change the term though we should call them climate disasters but then yeah. doesn't that create the same problem as as natural disaster because yeah, the climate it itself seems, didn't cause it right it still seems like something that like is not connected to how about a capitalism disaster <laughs> <laughs> but then it isn't the economic recession a capitalism disaster? Yeah, you know, that's I true. That's true. I wonder if taking the natural out of natural disaster, like then people, I, I think we might be splitting hairs on this term a little bit, to be quite yeah. honest. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm fine with using the term climate disaster, but I don't mm -hmm. think calling it a natural disaster makes people think, well, well, it was just natural. Like that person is going to think that anyway. Yeah, no matter what exactly. you call it, calling yeah. it, taking natural out of the term doesn't fix the problem. So yeah, I agree. I agree. I think I think we have bigger fish to fry, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I do. Kendra Pierre-Louis is at The New York Times now. She used to be at Popular Science. She's been like one of my favorite science writers for a while. I think she has like a real knack for for telling more narrative science stories. Um, but when this story came out, it's all about kelp and how these underwater kelp forests are being eaten by, you know, invasive species. And it's all sort of driven by climate change. I think it, I really feel like it was the first story in recent time that like, I don't know, like anthropomorphized, you know, the ocean enough for people to get that like, we are really dramatically changing the ocean and that it is happening relatively rapidly and that it's, I don't know, that it's like, that it's causing this massive shift in the ocean and that that is actually impacting quite a lot of people too. So I'll read this excerpt. The story of the kelp's disappearance is the story of an interwoven food system breaking down and in the process threatening people's livelihoods. 
Some of the first people to sound the alarm about the purple urchins, Dr. Dr. Catan said, were commercial red urchin harvesters. One of them is Gary Trumper, who has, that's a really unfortunate name. One of them is wow. Gary, <laughs> yeah, one of them is Gary Trumper, who has harvested red urchins for more than thirty years. Red urchins, larger than purple urchins, are commercially viable because people eat them, or more specifically, their gonads. The delicacy is better known to sushi aficionados as uni. But the growing purple urchin population outcompeted the red urchins for the available kelp. Without kelp, the red urchins starved. So, first of all, I love that she got to use the word gonads in a New York Times story. <laughs> that took some real ovaries. <laughs> I, I thought she did such a good job in this story of um, of connecting what's happening with fishermen and fishing communities to climate change and also just how much it's shifting entire ecosystems in the ocean and how rapidly climate Twitter like went nuts for this story. And I feel like Mm. um, it sort of opened up the opportunity to like, to just do more of these kinds of stories where um, not just the people are alive, but like the, the ecosystems and the, the animals that are impacted feel like part of the story too. And like things that you care about, it's hard to make people care about urchins and like, yeah. Unless you're doing like little mermaid or something. Yeah. 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 No, she does a great job of like making it an actual narrative and an actual story and not a data dump. Exactly. Um, like it comes alive. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's a really great piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last piece I wanted to talk about really quickly um, is "Flood Thy Neighbor." It was in ProPublica, and it was like a, a combination or a partnership with Reveal, which is a great podcast. Um, they do really great investigating investigative uh, stories. Um, mm-hmm. So this is by Lisa Song and Patrick Michels in August 2018. It's about the levee system on the Mississippi River and who gets flooded and who doesn't. An engineer for the Corps, the Army Corps of Engineers, St. Louis District, and chief of his hydraulic engineering section said he still stands by the Army Corps' 1993 calculations. When ProPublica and Reveal asked the Corps whether it ever checks its predictions of levee-induced flooding against more recent data, a spokesman from the agency said the verification process that you describe is not a practice the Corps uses. As a result, levees that are meant to last for decades, even a century, are built based on maps and modeling technology from another era. Um, So why why I picked this piece as a foundational piece is because, first of all, this piece is not strictly about climate. In fact, climate is just like a section that's like... There's a section of the this very long article that does talk about climate change, but it's also interwoven throughout the entire narrative about this town suffers super serious flooding and this town doesn't. That's just across the river. And the Army Corps of Engineers is basically deciding who gets flooded and who doesn't. And like all of these different warring factions among these neighbors across the river from one another. Um, And so I thought it was a really great example of integrating climate into the larger narrative and also investigating 
our levels of preparedness, right? Because what we were talking earlier about like the fishing permits aren't keeping up with the warming oceans, right? We've right. built a whole society. We've built a whole civilization built on predictability. Mm-hmm. And that predictability is now being shaken at its very core and we ain't ready. Yeah, totally. I know this happens with um, water in California a lot too. Like w- water in California is like a whole boondoggle. But, um, but there are all these reservoirs that are completely engineered and managed according to precipitation patterns from like 30 years ago. <laughs> and, and it's like, and they don't match with what's happening now. So what ends up happening is like the reservoirs will get flooded sometimes. So you end up wasting a bunch of water that could have been captured. And then they're not like, they're not, you know, they're not let, like releasing it when they need to. They're not really built to store it when they need to. And it's this whole thing. And, it, you know, we're, we're just like, why hasn't this system adapted for the kind of weather that we're seeing now? Especially since, you know, we're seeing exactly what climate models predicted 30 years ago. Um, exactly. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, if anything, yeah. they've been underselling it. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. All right, now we're ready to talk about our standout pieces. These are pieces that we just loved, that made us feel something that stood out as just really excellent examples of climate writing in 2018. Okay, so I uh, I feel like kind of a mark saying that I picked a Rebecca Solna essay. So easy, what? just too easy. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I do love her, and I'm I'm excited that she is starting to write more and more about climate. Um, mm-hmm. And she actually wrote. I mean, okay, first of all, it is damn hard to write something interesting about an IPCC report. <laughs> um, yeah, if you've never read one, they do this thing after every single sentence where they put in parentheses like the level of confidence they have in what they're saying. <laughs> so it's like, are you serious? Yes, it's like they're like this, like you know this year blah 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 medium confidence next year blah 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 very high confidence (laughs) okay they're hard to read so they're very hard to write about and Rebecca Solnit wrote this great and sort of inspiring essay called don't despair the climate fight is only over if you think it is and this I'm going to read the part that made me feel like okay I get it I can keep going (laughs) Mm, okay The future hasn't already been decided. That is, climate change is an inescapable present and future reality. But the point of the IPCC report is that there is still a chance to seize the best case scenario rather than surrender to the worst. Natan Sharansky, who spent nine years in a gulag for his work with Soviet dissident Andrei Sakharov, recalls his mentor saying, quote, they want us to believe there's no chance of success, but whether or not there's hope for change is not the question. If you want to be a free person, you don't stand up for human rights because it will work, but because it is right. We must continue living as decent people. And then she goes on, right now, living as decent people means every one of us with resources taking serious climate action or stepping up what we're already doing. Mm. 
So A, I like that she has the caveat with resources because I hate this. This is like one of the things that bothers me the most about the individual narrative is that it assumes a level of, um, you know, abundance that like a lot of people yeah. don't have, you know? Like, yeah, just... and a level of, of ability, right? Like yes. a whole straw ban. Yes. Right? yes. Like you can't use a straw. And then there's these, these disabled communities for whom they need those. Exactly. And right? Like exactly. Everybody yeah. should take the action that works for their lives. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And again, like, you know, individual action isn't just about consumerism. It can also it be isn't. about activism. And like the industry really likes for people to forget about that. But it's not just about the shit that you buy. It's also about like the stuff that you do and the things that you say. And like you can have influence that way too. So um, anyway, I, I liked, I really liked, um, I like any climate story that connects to other human rights and civil rights movements. Cause mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, we still don't do enough of looking at those movements and um, nope. you know, like you've written about this a lot yeah. and how, how like, you know, the civil rights movement was not in fact driven by hope. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And also like like, you don't, like you feel like you're creating something from scratch, but you're not, you know what I mean? Someone did this before. Like these playbooks exist. Yes. Um, so yeah, Yeah. no, this was a really great piece. I remember it resonating with a lot of people and helping them like claw their way back off the ground. So yeah, 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 definitely. Okay, yeah. your turn. I know what your turn is. <laughs> I already know it. Because I know, like, you you were asking on Twitter, like, where is this piece? I can't find this piece. <laughs> I remember reading it. I <laughs> loved this essay so much. It made me cry so many times. And because I'm a glutton for punishment, I went back and read it over and over and over again. Um, because it takes you through this emotional roller coaster of just like down in the depths and then back up to the mountaintop. And it's so beautiful. Um, it is called The Sons of the Pre-Apocalypse. It's by Brian Merchant in Vice. Um, and it came out in November 2018, which for a little bit more context, that's right after the IPCC report that we keep talking about because it was so groundbreaking and um, in during the horrible wildfire season that year. Uh, which is like pretty much as a character throughout this entire uh, piece. So I'm going to try not to cry as I read it now, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> so no one wants to deliver a child into the onset of an apocalypse, but at least it's not certain yet whether those days just feel like the beginning of the end or are the end of something anyway. What is certain The fires burn worse every year. The climate is changing. The science has been crystal clear for so, so long. But you have to be worse than a dope to live in California and not just feel it intuitively now. The droughts are longer, the temperatures higher, the snow melt lessen, the brush drier, the fires likelier, bigger, and better fueled. But I'm not writing all this because I'm despairing or fuming, though both are part of the mix. I'm writing this for a maybe cheesily optimistic reason. But I will take cheesily optimistic and I will cling to it with a bloody death grip right now. My sons are going to live in cities on fire, in nations led by men who don't care, and they are going to have to learn to tackle the problem as we are. If I can, in any way, help them tap into that capacity that I felt last night, if they can help me and if others can, and if that relation can help topple power and denial, then maybe we can sustain this pre-apocalypse. Whether it takes another blue wave or nine, a political revolution, mass hallucinations, or something else, 
If we can relate that goodness where applicable and confront power whenever possible, my sons may not have to live their adult lives in omnipresent fear of fire. People are basically good. Power corrupts, but it is not decorruptible, and there is a lot of work to do. At least that's what gave me hope that week as I watched my world burn, literally and figuratively, but most literally as my beautiful new ward eked out his being amongst the smoke. <sighs> I know. This was this one made me cry too. It, like yeah. the, the like the context is that like, you know, he has just had a newborn. Yeah. And the and like these fires are just like raging all over California and it's like this crazy thing of of like holding the future and the present at the same time, you know. Exactly. Yeah. And being pissed at at whoever put your life and your child's life in this type of danger, right? Like right. it's supposed right. to be a happy moment to bring your newborn back home. Mm-hmm. And it can't be, be. Well, I mean, he is happy at the exact same time. So he has like this huge mix of emotions. Like he's yeah. thrilled about his new son, yeah. but also terrified about the world that he's brought him into. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't have children. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> it's like not necessarily something I'm thinking about, yeah. but I do have children in my life that I really care about. And so yeah. I'm always interested in these stories about, you know, how to balance those emotions. And he just does such a beautiful job here of dealing with that just emotional confusion. Yeah, yeah, Uh, it is. I've been just talking to someone about that the other day, that it's this really, because parenting like involves so many very simple, specific, present day-to-day tasks, like, you know, wiping butts mm -hmm. and making lunches, you know? (laughs) Right. But, it, but like to be doing that stuff while also constantly having this like film reel in your head of like what the future might hold. Right. Um, it's just, it's weird. It is a very weird feeling. Right. Um, and not being able to take your infant outside because they can't breathe the air. Exactly. This, this essay was just so touching and so beautiful and so necessary at the same time. And I, I, and I feel like it was really brave of him to talk about like, the need for, you know, his need for optimism in that yes. moment. And just like, I don't care if it's cheesy. I'm going to hold on to it with everything that I have. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And in a way that's like, like, so the optimism that he gets is like from having just like sort of a moment of joy in like a family, you know, mm-hmm. a like simple family moment. And I that to me, I, I think also was really was useful because I, I kind of feel like, okay, we do have to sort of hold on to these moments of, you know, human experience that deliver little shots of joy. <laughs> like you cannot yeah. live in, in despair all the time. And like, um, yeah. and that like optimism can come in the form of like those little moments versus a sort of, you know, we're going to win about what's going on. Yeah. 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 I think what we need to be practicing is trying to learn to feel things more deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, and that includes the good and the bad. Right. So yeah. when I see a beautiful day, I try to like memorize every sensation from that day because there are going to be days that aren't beautiful. Right. Um, there are going right. to be days where it's terrifying and the weather is acting absolutely berserk. So like if there's yeah. a beautiful winter day where New York feels the way New York should feel in January, I try right. to hold on to that day. Yes. Um, and yes. I think we all need to try to to do that as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Totally.
Well, that was a lot. <laughs> yeah, it was. It really was. Like, I'm, I'm high-key proud of the climate movement in 2018, to be quite honest. Yes, totally. It feels like it grew up and grew some balls, finally. Or gonads, as Kendra would put it. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, there was a lot more work to be done, but 2018 was a major transformation. Yeah, it really was. And we'll definitely talk about that more in our 2019 episode coming up in early January. So make sure you stay tuned for that. Definitely. And remember that all the articles we talk about here are going to be up on our Twitter and in the show notes. And don't forget to leave us a review or a rating if you like the show. Word is that it really helps us grow as a podcast. Amy, can you explain why? Yes. The more ratings we get, the more we show up in people's feeds as like a suggested show for them. And oh. like it helps us chart in the different uh, platforms too. So it does actually like it's a it's kind of a, a key thing thing for the algorithms that run behind all the different podcast platforms so do it it helps us yeah and i mean only do if you like the show though Um, (laughs) yes i love that you keep reminding people not to leave negative reviews it's good we don't need it we don't need it yeah you don't need to go out of your way for that it's fine like it's cool um (laughs) but also i can't let us end this episode without congratulating the fuck out of you for winning at week's podcast network of the year for your company critical frequency yay yeah i know that was such a big surprise we're like we're you know pretty scrappy independent network so that was awesome um we have you know we put out various other shows including drilled we have a show about mothers called the double shift um we put out the first album as a podcast it's called peace of mind and we've got a bunch more shows coming next year too so um mm-hmm. so yeah and there's no place like home with yes Jane no and place Mary. like home is a new um addition to the network this year uh so another great climate show we're kind of we're trying to corner the market on like good women like, <laughs> climate shows. <laughs> it's like think of it as the feminist answer to cricket media. Yes. Um, and <laughs> there's also deep democracy, which is another of my favorite critical yes. frequency. Yes. Yeah. Me too. Like I get to produce that show, and it's always fun for me to listen to in advance. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I love them. A proud moment to be part of this family. And can you remind everybody when our big sister podcast drill comes back? Because yes. I cannot wait. Yes. And I have changed the date on this a couple times because I keep needing a little bit more time. But it's coming back. I mean, it's a big season. Oh, my God. It's so much. Um, it's coming back the week of January 20th. It's going to be a little bit of a return to the season one kind of historical narrative of of how we got here we're looking at the um the very specific people who helped to build the propaganda apparatus that um got us to where we are with fossil fuels so we're calling that the madmen of climate denial and um yeah coming the week of january 20th exciting um so one last reminder to send us your climate storytelling questions at hot takes at criticalfrequency.org and tweet at us if we missed anything also, be nice about it though yeah yeah only nice tweets <laughs> also make sure to send us your favorite pieces from 2019 as we get ready for that show all right y'all we'll talk to you again soon and take care of yourselves in the meantime Bye. 
Take is written and produced by Mary Anais Hegler and me, Amy Westervelt. It's distributed by the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. Our theme song is New Frontier by Flashing Lights. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Email us at hottakes at criticalfrequency.org. That's hot takes, plural, with your questions about climate storytelling or articles you'd like to see discussed on the show. Thanks for listening. 